Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. After last week's break from our narrative, this week, we're back amongst the aftermath of Sigurbert's death. We've heard about our main character this week, Guntramboso, already. He was one of the two dukes who defeated and killed Chilperic's eldest son, Theudebert, and was a supporter of his second son, Merovec. Guntram Boso is a significant character. So significant, in fact, that we're only going to cover roughly the first half of his story this week. Honestly, it's shocking how long this man survives for, and we don't want to stray too far ahead because we won't have the necessary context to understand what is happening. So we're going to take our time and take regular breaks to discuss what Guntram Boso's story tells us about how things are changing in Gaul and how not to handle the new political situation. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Merovec slip and slide his way into and out of conflict. But unlike the young Merovingian, Guntramboso represents the new generation of nobles who are on the rise. Previously, a king would just stamp out a rebel like Guntramboso. So why can't Chilperic be rid of him? Let's find out in episode 21, Walking on the Knife's Edge. Guntram Boso's early life is obscure, and we can't be sure about anything before his emergence to fight Theudebert in 575. Guntram Boso appears to have been a fairly run-of-the-mill Frankish noble. Aggressive and ambitious, sure, but that could describe many men in this period. Guntram Boso probably either served at court or as one of Sigebert's personal bodyguards, his Ludes. He must have done something to distinguish himself to be made a duke and sent off to raise a force on the Loire, though what it was is also lost to time. This is the first pause I'd like to make, to make a quick point about Merovingian courts. To put it simply, they were a bit of a mess. Medieval courts would later become highly structured, with everyone holding specific offices with specific roles and duties. In this early period, however, none of that exists. Merovingian courts were about what you'd expect from a people who lived on the edge of civilization for years, catching glimpses of Roman courts, only to suddenly have to try it for themselves. Things were beginning to settle down by Clothar's death, but elaborate court culture was still a long way away. This meant roles were given out ad hoc as things needed doing, authority was fluid, and in times of uncertainty, forceful nobles or queens could wield significant power. And even the courts themselves were fluid, mostly moving with kings, as they travelled. This ad hoc approach to governing encouraged a large group of sycophants and hangers-on who did little but hang around a court, hoping to benefit from some random burst of generosity from the king or to get a posting somewhere important. This mass of ambitious but idle courtiers 
was what made Merovingian courts such a hive of intrigue in this period. But back to Guntramboso. Like many, he must have felt safe in backing Sigebert, who clearly seemed to have the upper hand. And having killed Chilperic's eldest son and secured the Loire, Guntramboso must have been getting ready for a large reward from Sigebert once the war was over. But, as we know, things didn't go that way. With Sigebert assassinated, Chilperic was on the rise, and Guntramboso had just killed his son. Not good. This is where Guntramboso makes an interesting move. He had been closely aligned with Sigebert, so the logical thing to do might have been to move east and join with Childebert II and his aristocratic-led court. But instead, he decided to stay in central Gaul, moving into Gregory's church at Tours and receiving sanctuary. Perhaps he didn't want to abandon his power base in the area that he had just established, or perhaps he didn't trust the longevity of Childebert II's reign. Either way, he stayed, beginning a tough time for both our friend Gregory and his city of Tours. Chilperic had not forgotten about Guntramboso, and now the rebel duke was one of the reasons he kept trying to move south after consolidating his hold on the north, a move Merovec's actions kept interrupting. Before that, however, Chilperic sent a man named Rockelin to Tours to see if he could force out Guntramboso from his hidey-hole. Rockelin, like many would after him, approached Gregory with a potent mix of arrogance and aggression. He moved his army, comprised of men from the nearby area of men, to the opposite bank of the Loire and settled into a church house there. He then sent messengers to Gregory, quote, to say that I must expel Guntram from my church, for he was accused of having killed Theudebert. End quote. When Chilperic would later try and force Gregory to give up Merovec, he used a more subtle message designed to undermine Merovec's right to sanctuary. Rockelin had none of the subtlety or understanding of how the church functioned. He simply said, Guntramboso was accused of a crime, and if Gregory didn't release him, Rockelin would, quote, order the city and all of its suburbs to be burnt to the ground, end quote. I'd like to pause again here quickly to discuss the sacking of Tours, because, as you might have noticed, this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time, someone pillages Tours and the surrounding countryside. Gregory always describes these attacks as vicious and devastating. But if Tours was really being burnt to the ground every year or two, wouldn't the city simply cease to exist, or at least lose some importance? Exactly how devastating were these sacks in reality? Well, like so much in this period, it is hard to tell, but we have some clues. The fact Gregory remains bishop There isn't some kind of popular uprising against him. He doesn't really lose any influence, and Tours remains a major city in Gaul, indicates 
that these sacks weren't as devastating as Gregory makes out. It is worth noting that not only does Gregory survive and his city remains important, but he also finishes the massive repairs on his cathedral, which was burned down under his predecessor Euphronius, though it does take him a full 17 years. But it would be incorrect to swing the other way and assume no one was ever hurt and Gregory is being a drama queen about it. Sacks were fairly commonplace in the late antique period, and they were brutal and harsh, but were also survived quite regularly. Unlike modern cities, ancient cities did not simply spring up wherever. They tended to sit on strategic points or trade routes, and this meant they weren't easy to destroy permanently. Remember, Tours both accessed the Loire trade route and was at the centre of five Roman roads. It was too well located not to rebuild when it was damaged. It was also significantly easier to repair damage from a sack than to build a whole new city, and armies didn't tend to take apart a city brick by brick. More likely, they would just take whatever wasn't nailed down and set the rest ablaze. If citizens were able to either hide their valuables or run with them, they could return and re-establish some sense of normalcy fairly easily. Life was harsher back in the day, and it bred more resilient people. The Persian capital of Ctesiphon, for example, was sacked by the Romans several times, but also rebuilt each time due to its importance. So, ultimatum delivered, Rockelin laid back to await Gregory's inevitable capitulation. Unfortunately, instead of a letter saying when Guntram Bosa would be expelled from the church, Rockelin received messengers from Gregory, who respectfully and calmly explained that what he demanded could not be done, since sanctuary was a sacred rite going back to the roots of the church, and attacking the church would cost Rockelin and Chilperic far more than they would gain. Just in case that threat was too subtle for this new man, Gregory also informed Rockelin that, quote, he would do better to shake in fear before St. Martin the Bishop, whose miraculous power only the day before had made paralyzed limbs straight, end quote. This miracle was meant to illustrate to Rockelin that his secular power was no match for the power of a saint. So, a classic showdown, faith versus force. In retaliation for this message, Rockelin tore apart the church house that he was staying in, with his men keeping the nails of St. Martin's holy house as keepsakes. Then, according to Gregory, they went about, quote, destroying the harvest and ruining everything else as they went, end quote. In this period, cities were almost always one bad harvest away from mass starvation, so burning the crops was almost worse than burning the city. One calculated act of terrorism done, Rockelin began to suffer from jaundice, a condition where your skin and the whites of your eyes begin to turn yellow. 
This is caused by someone's liver not functioning properly. Though, of course, the people of the time did not know that, so it would have been fairly easy to assume that it was, in fact, the wrath of St. Martin. Initially undeterred, Rockelin repeated his threats to Gregory, which were duly ignored. Once his condition worsened, however, he relented and entered the city, coming to the church in desperation. But he could not find salvation there, and he continued to deteriorate as his army retreated from Tours and it entered Poitiers. He died there, apparently still not pious enough, as he was found eating baby rabbits during Lent and plotting to loot the city. Now, whether or not you believe in miracles, it is easy to see why the people of the time would have with situations like this. Gregory seems to have won, and Guntramboso was still safe and sound in his church, while Rockelin lay dead. This wouldn't be the end of problems for Guntramboso, however. Chilperic, apparently deciding that family was more reliable, sent Merovic's younger brother Clovis south with an army to ravage Tours. Clovis did march into Touraine, but he seems to have gotten a little distracted and moved on to the town of Sant, occupying it. Why? Well, that is actually quite unclear. But in doing so, he managed to restart the civil wars, as King Guntram was enraged at the young Merovingian's actions and sent our old friend Momulus out to attack Limoges, where he defeated one of Chilperic's commanders and looted Clermont in revenge before returning to Burgundy. As this was happening, Guntram Boso managed to convince Merovic to come to Tours. So, two disasters, and both were at least partially Guntram Boso's fault. Ludist, the new Count of Tours, was loyal to Chilperic, and his cat-and-mouse game with Merovic and Guntram Boso almost immediately became violent. Though, as we noted two weeks ago, he failed to capture either of the men. I'd like to pause here again to quickly address something that will become important later. You may notice that while Merovic and Gantramboso were technically within Sanctuary, they seemed to be leaving at least sometimes and operating a violent insurgency while hiding behind Gregory's robes. This is definitely not what Sanctuary was meant to be like, and Gregory would eventually pay the price for seemingly letting these men take action against Chilperic whilst under his roof. It is not clear he could have stopped them, but that won't matter to Chilperic and Fredegund. But enough foreshadowing, let's get back to the story. Now years into hiding in this church, Guntramboso, Gregory notes with some derision, sent a servant to a woman who apparently had the power of prophecy. Obviously, this woman was not part of the church, so Gregory doesn't believe, but Guntramboso seems to. When his servant returned, they informed their master of the woman's prophecy as follows. It shall come to pass that King Chilperic will die this very year. Merovec will become king, for he will seize the realm and exclude his brothers. 
For five years, you, Guntram, will be military leader of Merivec's kingdom. In the sixth year, in a city situated on the right bank of the River Loire, you will be made a bishop, with the full consent of the local inhabitants. When the time comes for you to die, you will be an old man, and full of days. Of course, when Guntram Boso came to Gregory with this, the bishop laughed in his face, and said, quote, It is God who grants these things. One should put no reliance on the devil's promises. End quote. And Gregory was right. None of this would come true, though, I must point out, the prophetic dream he had was also wrong. So, those in glass houses and whatnot. Anyway, Guntram Boso's situation was about to get even more complicated. Despite seemingly being all in for Merovic, he received a message from Fredegund. She wrote to him and promised that if he lured Merovic out of the church and into a trap, all would be forgiven and he would be handsomely rewarded. Here is where Gregory first alleges that Guntram Boso had been supported by Fredegund all along. Who was pleased that he had killed Theudebert and deprived her potential son of a potential rival? This seems to be a bit of a stretch. He had more than enough reason to kill the prince without Fredegund, but the picture is complicated by the duke's actions. Guntram Boso's big problem, according to Gregory, was that he was too quick to break his word. I would argue that this is true, but his bigger problem is that he thought he was much smarter than he actually was. With Fredegund now seemingly on his side, Guntram Boso tries to play all sides and it gets messy for him rather fast. Unwilling to openly betray Merovic in case the prophecy was right, Guntram instead simply tries to lure Merovic into Fredegund's ambush without revealing his intentions. This fails, and Merovic eventually leaves the church on his own terms, after receiving his doomed prophecy at the tomb of St. Martin. Guntram Boso, instead of leaving to warn Fredegund and curry her favour, accompanies Merovic and his small band. But, once Merovic gets captured, he disappears. He doesn't officially reappear for a little while, but Gregory accuses him of organising Merovic's betrayal, capture, and eventual suicide. Now, this would make some sense. Fredgund wanted Merovic dead rather than captured, Guntram Boso would have had contacts who might have known where Merovic was hiding, and the offer of kingship Merovic receives does stink of someone who knew him well pulling the strings to entrap him. Of course, we will never know for sure, but it is entirely possible that he was involved. Since this is the last event of his life we'll discuss today, Let's pause one last time and talk about how Merovingian politics has changed, and how Guntram Boso is navigating it. Since he had originally been all in for Sigebert, his initial path was clear, support the king. Once that king was assassinated, however, 
Guntramboso was thrown into survival mode. In this new situation, his options were limited, but instead of trying to reach the relative safety of Childebert II's court, he chose to stay in Tours. This is why I think Guntramboso's biggest issue is how he thought he was smarter than he was. I don't know what he was hoping for, but it seems clear to me that he quickly lost control of the situation. He clearly didn't expect Chilperic to come after him so aggressively. He was astute enough to manipulate Merovic and use the prince to bolster his position, but once Fredegund got involved, he immediately began to waver. Instead of picking a side, his actions seemed to indicate that he might have been trying to play each side off of the other to either secure himself the best deal or simply see who survived. Not a bad plan, but a truly terrible execution. See, he wasn't really in a position to do this. Skilled politicians and powerful courtiers like Brunhild and Fredegund would be able to take this more astute stance and play people off of each other, but they had benefits that Guntram simply did not have. Absolutely the safest option would have been to pick a strong patron and stick with them. But he'd already burned too many bridges. Fredegund may like using him as a tool to further her interests, but her husband still hated him, and he'd never be safe in their court. So why entertain the queen? If you're still banking on Merovec winning, why undermine him? If you're trying to sow chaos in hopes of currying favour with Childebert's court, you must know that by now, none of them trust you, and each move you make makes you more of a liability for them. Starting with few options, Guntramboso had successfully reduced them down to none, and his troubles were just beginning. The former duke possessed the single most important skill in Merovingian Gaul, the ability to survive. All the greatest people of the age needed this. Brunhild especially had it in spades. But Guntramboso did little else we can admire, and even halfway into his career, I'm sure you can guess, things aren't going to end well for him. Now, after a whole episode about a noble, next week we're going to switch it up and talk about a bishop. Up next is one of the most dramatic and intense passages in Gregory's histories, the trial of Bishop Praetextatus. Praetextatus was the man who married Merovic and Brunhild, and Chilperic and Fredegund are coming for him. It's one of the most fascinating parts of Merovingian history, and a personal favourite of mine. So I'll see you then.